0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2022, volume 60, number 10. Uh, my name is David Fazakli, and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Uh, hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about October's DTB. But let me start this month by highlighting an issue that was brought to our attention via Twitter. Uh, James, colleagues of yours in primary care pointed out that the Care Quality Commission, and that's the body that regulates health and social care in England, um, has got a section on its website about medicines that GP practices should have available for home visits. It's called GP Mythbuster 9, Emergency Medicines for GP Practices. And it includes a list of drugs for practices to consider stocking. And as part of the inspection process, uh, GP practices should be able to provide evidence that it's risk assessed its list of emergency medicines. And this is a long way of saying, but at the bottom of that section of the CQC's website, it talks about, or it refers readers, to three documents, uh, resuscitation councils, anaphylaxis guidance, and two DTB articles, drugs for the doctor's bag, one and two. One deals with adults, the other deals with children. And the issue we picked up from Twitter was that these articles are not free to access. So, James, do you want to say a bit about what we've done in response to this and what you said on Twitter about why DTP articles aren't free?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, uh, clearly what we've done is we've um, opened them up, free access now for the next three months. So um, don't hesitate, get on and uh, download them and use them if you wish. But I think it's just important that we remember that the good evidence, particularly DTB evidence, which relies on no sort of advertising whatsoever costs. And we have a model which relies on subscriptions to pay for DTB. Obviously, in years gone by, the government paid for it and every doctor in the land got a copy. And that was great. And we would love that to happen again. But in the meantime, I'm afraid it is a case of all or most of our Product, If you like, is behind a paywall. But I would say also at the moment, because it's our 60th anniversary, we do have a subscription saving. I think it's 25% off at the moment, which works out at significantly less than a Sky TV subscription significantly less, probably about a third, if even less. And, you know, I just think, say to you, you know, I, I think DTB is worth subscribing to. And uh more that subscribe, the more, oddly enough, we will be able to make some articles free for others to look at from time to time. But, yeah, important thing. Um, the, the CQC, I think it's just uh, worth mentioning that it's a funny one, this, because the CQC, although they have a list of drugs they su- suggest that you might want, this is all down to risk assessment. So this comes under Regulation 12, which is about safe care and treatment. And the CQC expects you to demonstrate that uh, you're providing safe care and treatment and that you're managing risks. So you simply have to justify why you don't have certain drugs available and why you do have others. You know, that's what it's all about. So if anyone's thinking, oh, my goodness, what's this all about? We you know, do I need to stock all these drugs? The answer is sit down with the rest of your practice and risk assess what you feel, given whether you're a rural practice or whether you're a urban practice with an A&E next door, what do you feel clinically as doctors and prescribing clinical pharmacists and other prescribers, what should you carry in your practice to make it safe and manage patients well, both in the practice and when you do visits? That's what this is about. And it's a very fair approach
0: but I know it does worry doctors a great deal. And it's worth saying that those articles, well, they started back in 1976 with with an article called What Should the Doctor Carry in the Case? and then subsequently evolved into Drugs for the Doctors Bag series. And I think generally they've been redone or refreshed every five to ten years. But these ones that are on the CQC website, the ones that we've made free of charge for the next three months, they were published in 2015. I mean, maybe it's time that we think about updating them um, and whether anything has significantly changed since we, we wrote them. But it's worth saying that they are a starting point, aren't they, for Uh, consideration they list drugs that might be useful in an emergency but as you say it depends on your setting if you've got a and e next door you're going to need far less than if you're in the i don't know the outer hebrides and are going miles to see a patient
1: entirely i mean there are definitely some which i think you would struggle to well you might not you you might struggle to actually justify to the cqc for not carrying for example adrenaline i think it would be very difficult for a practice to be able to Demonstrate to um, the CQC that they've done a risk assessment and appropriately do not carry adrenaline. Particularly, if they're doing any sort of process in the practice itself. So, it, it but there are others I think where you know you could probably quite legitimately say you know for whatever reason no we don't carry this because actually given the circumstances we have. I think where things are difficult at the moment is with the provision of drugs now from paramedics and ambulances, I think general practice has often been able to say, well, you know, there are standards now set by the local ambulance service to be with us within X number of minutes and they have the drugs on site. So, you know, we don't need to stop them. Well, I think we need to risk assess now whether that is the case, given that it might be an hour or two before an ambulance arrives. So I think that's where one perhaps has to be just a little bit mindful that, unfortunately, with the failing ambulance services,
0: we need to think again about what drugs we might be carrying. So indeed, might be a good time for us to relook at these articles and see whether they need updating. Um, and just the last point, just going back to your statement about DTP subscriptions, yes, there is, there is a discount running at the moment for, for personal subscriptions, but equally it's worth people lobbying their local medical libraries or organisations for organisational subscriptions and various different ways of subscribing to DTB. And the more more subscriptions we get, the more content we can produce. Definitely. And, and, you know, a postgraduate library should stock
1: DTB. And if it does, you should be able to contact them and ask them for a copy of any of the articles that we supply. And they should be able to do that if it's for clinical reasons. So, uh, yeah, I think bang the drum for DTB and it can only become more available to people.
0: Okay, we'll stop the self-advertising now. Uh, (laughs) Let's move on to the editorial, which is also called or or is called Stop Advertising, um, which is one what you wrote, James. Uh, What's this one about? Yes, it's going to be
1: an advertising sort of day to day. Um, This is uh, me really saying enough is enough. We've noted uh, in the last few years that... A lot of the press releases from the Department of Health and Social Care, um, from NICE and the MHRA and their websites have begun to, I think, move away from non-promotional approaches to prescription only medicines to frankly advertising them. And I do that having looked at the MHRA Blue Guide, which is the guidance on what is acceptable and what isn't regarding the advertising of prescription-only medicines. And it's clear to me personally anyway that the MHRA and NICE are falling foul and have fallen foul of the law on the rules around prescribing prescription-only medicines under the Human
0: Medicines Regulation 2012 Part 14, to be precise. So it doesn't matter that the people that you're quoting so the mhra or, or nice or, or the nhs they're not the people who own the drug or sell it it doesn't matter that they are somehow uh, making claims they can still no, be it, seen as, as, absolutely. as advertising.
1: yeah so the the blue book makes it absolutely clear it says whilst the responsibility for ensuring that all advertising promotional material for a medicine complies with the regulations lies predominantly with the license holder the regulations provide that it is an offence for any person to breach the regulations. So it's very clear. Now, you could say that, um, you know, the NICE website is is meant to be for medical clinicians only, because obviously there is there is the ability for people to advertise drugs to clinicians. But actually, the that doesn't follow, because A, they haven't on their websites made that clear, and B, the MHRA under 4.3 quality standards of what an advertisement must be like, makes it very clear that it must comply with the particulars this is in the license, the SPC. It must be rational. It must be objective. It mustn't exaggerate the qualities. And yet we look at some of the websites that NICE had for Inclisiran or Romosozumab and it was very clear that they were exaggerating the qualities of these drugs and were not presenting it objectively. So, you know, I just feel that they've I, think I can understand what's going on. here. This is all about the life sciences strategy of 2021. This is all about the accelerated access collaborative where the NHS England, NHS improvement, the ABPI, the cell and gene therapy catapult, nice medicines, health regulation. They're all coming together to address the barriers to NHS adoption of early stage innovative products. That's me quoting from their their bump. So this is about them all wanting to get drugs into the system that are going to change people's lives for the better, hopefully. And I just think they've got a little bit exuberant and they need to step back and recognise that actually there's a good reason why prescription-only medicine drugs are not advertised to the general public. And that's not something that we allow in this country at the moment. And until we do, and I hope we don't, but until we do, they need to back off and get more objective and stop centralising this and
0: stop being, you know, basically unbalanced. And it, and it seems to me that the, what you pick up on in, in the editorial are kind of three problems. One is the language and things, expressions like game changing, cutting edge repeatedly occur in, in these press releases. So that That's one issue. The other, as you say, was, there was no balance, there was no mention of harms. So all you got was what the drug does in possibly a slightly exaggerated format, but there was nothing to say, but by the way, these drugs might cause these problems. Therefore, if you're talking to your clinicians, think about both the harms and the benefits. And quite often, and those of us who've got long memories and, and go back a long way, will remember when we were taught about reviewing evidence, was that you don't look at at relative risk reductions you look at that and absolute benefits but again these press releases well they focus on relative risk reductions and not absolute risk reductions. so you don't know if you're talking about something that's a rare event or a very common event so those seem to be the three things that you you or that we are railing against in this in this editorial um and is that is that a fair accusation do you think absolutely right i think this is this is the issue and i and
1: you know you've you've got to be absolutely precise with prescription drugs particularly new ones where we don't have long-term data and this is the thing that you know dtb has always gone about remember andrew herxheimer saying you know what's the one thing we don't know about any drug when it's first licensed and the answer is long-term data and i think It's very difficult when you have this sort of language coming out of the very top of the NHS from the chief executive, from even the secretary of state for health and social care. It's very difficult if you're a humble GP and you're being told by the system that you should be prescribing in to all your patients with high cholesterol. That puts an enormous onus on you then to say, you know, hang on a minute. I may only be a humble GP or clinical pharmacist, but Actually, this drug has not yet actually stopped anyone having a heart attack, as far as we can tell from the evidence. You know how how do I get across to a patient that despite all this hype, what well, they've read in the papers, it's game changing, is three hundred thousand people that are going to have their lives saved? And actually, well, yeah, okay, but actually, this drug has yet to be shown to have saved anyone's life at all, and we have no long term data on it. You know, this is big stuff, and if we're going to have proper patient Decisions where we sit down with the patient and are able to give them the proper facts across the table and let them make the decision about whether they want to take this drug, then we need to make sure that we are objective. And, you know, I'm going to go on something else uh, in a future editorial, I suspect, about the fact that very often one of the problems with NICE data is you don't even have that data. It's all redacted in their in their committee, but that's, that's that's for another day. But yes, I just think we need to step down a bit, just slow down a bit and let's get objective. Good drugs will always get used. We don't have to rush this necessarily. A good drug will always find its place. The problem is there's no such thing as a safe drug. There are
0: only safe prescribers and we need to remember that. And what would you like to see as a result of, of this? I mean, obviously your concerns are that the language is inappropriate and the messaging is, is difficult. But is there something also about trust in particularly the regulator and nice as they should be as independent and dispassionate as, as necessary? By all means, tell us the facts, but don't overhype. Exactly
1: that. It's, it's exactly that. And, you know, and I know, as I say, one of the problems is that they've all been sort of coalesced into this new triumvirate of, of drugs. It's all meant to be part of the Brexit Benefit, and I, I think that they've got to sort of recognise that they're dealing not with some commodity here. This is about drugs, and drugs are different from commodities in that respect. You can't just treat them like I was going to say pork belly, or whatever you know the Americans call it, or orange juice. You know, this is different, and I think they've just not clocked that. And that may be because maybe there's some quite. I don't know, new faces at the top. It may be that I think clinicians are not being heard at the moment in general. I think there's a lot more being heard. I think the pharmaceutical industry, probably on the back of their success with the vaccination programme, have a very good voice in the sense that they are being heard. And I think clinicians need to find their voice and say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not sure. It doesn't matter how much you've said in your press releases, I'm not sure I can prescribe this drug until I know a little bit more about it.
0: Okay, thank you for that. And we'll look forward to the next one in the series <laughs> Part of two. James Rantz, Um <laughs> Next year, perhaps. Um, okay, yes. well, let's, let's move on to um, one of the DTB select items that we've published this month. And it looks at an article uh, on paracetamol and blood pressure. And we discussed this briefly when it first came out in an earlier podcast, and we said we'd come back to it and look at it in more depth. So do you want to just give a bit more Flesh around the bones. Of yes! This
1: one. Oh joy! Here's some good old-fashioned medicine. This is um, a nice, really quite small, just crossover study published in Circulation um, earlier in the year called the Path BP trial, and it's one of those one of those trials you almost think, "Oh, I could do this myself," almost because it's just very straightforward. They took 110 people with high blood pressure, and they could either be patients who had controlled blood pressure on at least one antihypertensive or they were patients with untreated hypertension but it was not at the point where you'd want to treat it so their blood pressure was less than 150 over 95 but more than 135 over 85 and they just double blind placebo controlled randomised them to four grams grams—sorry, one gram of paracetamol four times a day so four grams a day or placebo for two weeks And then they were washed out and then they had a crossover. So the other side got the placebo, the other side got the paracetamol. And they just measured their blood pressure. And what they found was that on average, patients' blood pressure rose by 4.7 millimetres of mercury systolic whilst they were taking their paracetamol. Which is quite significant when you think that looking at something like benjoflumathiazide, 2.5 milligrams, you get about a... 2 to 5 milligram reduction in systolic blood pressure with that drug. So taking paracetamol is the equivalent to almost taking away one of someone's antihypertensives. So that sort of makes sense. So I think that's a very significant, and I think what was particularly interesting was that one person had to be withdrawn from the study because they developed a blood pressure of 185 over 76 after 14 days on paracetamol so they had a significantly elevated blood pressure which returned to normal after treatment now that's one person in 110 people so using the rule of three that could mean that one in 300 people who take paracetamol regularly have got high blood pressure because of the paracetamol so that's a thought for us out in clinical world you know if you've got patients who are taking paracetamol Long-term, you have hypertension. Do we need to ask
0: ourselves, could it be the paracetamol? And has there been an official response to this? Obviously, this paper's been published. The regulators or anyone responded to it?
1: So the pharmacovigilance expert advisory group of the MHRA have looked at the study, and they suggested that the product information for paracetamol did not need updating and that no other regulatory action was warranted. Which I just think, given some of the things that come out of the MHRA about rare risk of complications of drugs that we use commonly, I think that's, for my way of thinking, probably a mistake. Um, I think this is important. Now, of course, it, it is a small study, 110 people only. I think mostly men mostly me- white men. So, you know, there is an issue here, but I think it would have been useful for them to say something like, well, actually, we need to do some more work on this. And this is exactly where, you know, with the NHS having a single data bed, the CPRD, you know, we could do that work. And perhaps it's happening, I don't know, but certainly there's no obvious movement from the, any of the advisory groups that have looked at this so far.
0: And of course, the, the, the outcome was just blood pressure
1: effect, not clinical that's very true absolutely right so there wasn't an outcome
0: issue it was just looking at blood pressure alone but as you said it does just reading it through and you know it, it felt a reasonable paper what it found seems important almost too important just to be dismissed as not an issue for further discussion but as you said there may be maybe things going on behind the scenes further work going on to, to look at the significance of this but you know in your mind as a practicing clinician prescriber will it change what you do in any way
1: well i think paracetamol is is sort of i think on a very slow downward slide isn't it i mean it's been the drug of choice for pain for many many years because it's been considered to be completely safe and yet nice recently recommended that it shouldn't be used long term for patients with chronic primary pain we discussed that i think some years ago now and i think there's just a sort of you know, general, it's like everything I said earlier, you know, there's no such thing as a safe drug. And I think for me, the concept of any patient being on long-term paracetamol is one that's worth just reviewing and asking oneself, how about a drug holiday? Let's see how much pain relief this patient is really getting from this drug. And let's see what their blood pressure does if we stop it for a couple of weeks. Because it's not, you know, people are not going to come to harm from stopping their paracetamol. They may... You know, hurt more, and of course they can restart it at any time if it's too difficult for them. But it certainly, to me, sounds like another s- example where systemic medication review, or when one is doing sort of drug holiday option,
0: or patients who are getting frail.
1: This may be one of those situations where you say, "Let's let's try stopping this."
0: Okay, thank you very much. Let's watch this space and see if any more appears around paracetamol and blood pressure. Um, and let's move on to our uh, longer article this month. And, and this is one that picks up themes that are quite important to DTB, in fact, very important to DTB. Um, and those focus on the need to challenge and counter inappropriate promotion of medicines. Um, and we've done a bit of this in, in an editorial this month, talking about medicines perhaps in, inappropriately through official um, government channels, but this comes at a slightly different angle. James, do you want to explain what, where it goes?
1: Yeah, so um, Mike Wilcock, one of our uh, board members, and Adrienne Few-Berman from Georgetown University Medical Centre in Washington have written a very, I think, a really interesting article looking at the rise and one might say fall of forums that have been critical and have been pressure groups around pharmaceutical marketing and promotion of drugs and they look at the history really behind the development of such organizations as No Free Lunch is one that I think most people will remember Healthy Skepticism is another which actually No Free Lunch merged with in 2011 you have a number of uh, continental Organizations who mirrored no free lunch um aspirations, and also Farmer Aware was one that was around run by medical students um around the millennium. And it really just looks at where we are with them and actually how many of these organizations have actually slipped away
0: and are now seemingly dormant. And and I remember when I first started it at DTB, which was Twelve, twelve, thirteen years ago, uh, each month we would email our kind of table of contents to one of these farmer aware groups. You know, it was a group of medical students and newly qualified doctors who were interested in what DTP had to say because they were cynical or skeptical about what the industry was was saying to them, and they wanted to see whether there was a, a contrary view to to what was being promoted about drugs. Now that that group probably. As far as I can recall, disappeared maybe ten years ago, um, and, and not replaced. No, around
1: the time I I joined DTB, I remember we had a meeting with them and Andrew Herxheimer. and within a year, I think I think these the, the main leaders of those groups, you know, qualified, moved on and and got busy, and as a consequence, the organisation has probably just um, failed. I mean, I think what's interesting is um, the American Medical Student Association in particular, was very active um, in the early 2000s and did did some great work. They even had a scorecard system where medical schools were scored on how uh, objective they were around the issues of uh, pharmaceutical uh, promotion and marketing and actually uh, amazingly discovered that I think 40 schools received an F a sort of failure. And as a consequence of that, actually, many of these medical schools changed their policies overnight. So, you know, there was there have been some good success stories from these pressure groups. And I think it is really important, particularly as we see, um, I think pharmaceutical companies have changed their focus. I think in the past it was on representatives, advertising, freebies. And now you've got this much more subtle approach about promotion of disease, even creating diseases, perhaps the evergreening of medicine, and the sort of use of sort of partners through charities which which promote, perhaps unwittingly, the pharmaceutical agenda. And
0: there doesn't seem now to be that that same passion or voice. Or, or else it's more more spread out I mean I think as the authors point out, you know there, there are only really a couple of active organizations i mean there are some some people who cover this these topics in passing, but it's not their main focus. There are some countries where where it is still picked up and and, and discussed, but that high profile um focus on it that we did see hasn't been replicated. And they say, is it because people have just got older and they've settled into mainstream jobs and they haven't got the time to do it? Or are we being bypassed by systems that, that are much harder to tackle?
1: I think it's possibly more that the pharmaceutical industry used to be separate from academia mostly. And now the two are being merged into one. So if you are an NHS researcher, there's an expectation that you will work with the pharmaceutical companies in the production and development of new treatments. And, and, you know, one can understand the desire for that. But I think as a consequence, it's actually very difficult to remain objective. And we find that, don't we, when we're looking for experts to discuss drugs and to write articles for us. Finding those without a conflict of interest now is quite difficult because people are thoroughly integrated into the pharmaceutical system. Absolutely.
0: But again, it's part of our unique select point that, that we will only accept authors who don't have a, a, a conflict of, of interest. And I think what, for me, you know, this stuff is still important. It's changed its shape slightly. But I think this what this article is particularly useful for is, a, yes, a reminder of, of what used to happen, but also the need to still ask those fundamental questions, and I think they're they're well articulated in, in towards the end of the article about you know well who did fund and interpret the evidence that we use and and, and was anything hidden or suppressed or admitted from that data, uh, and then to the other questions that you you alluded to, which is about you know are, are we seeing disease states that are are, are egged or made up, um, and and what consumer groups are are supporting kind of the farmer agenda and are funded to do so. So important questions, um and always a good reminder that we should we should kind of dig beneath the surface of evidence and and look for those conflicts of interest, even if they're quite hard to spot sometimes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, the The pharmaceutical uh, landscape is littered with situations where drug companies haven't worked in the best interest for patients. I'm afraid that's just unfortunately the way it is. And it's really important that somewhere someone is holding a mirror up to that. And uh, we will do it at DTB as much as we can. And uh, if you feel that's an important part of the work we should be doing, then, you know, let us know. And if you've got examples of situations that, you know, you feel... Are wrong i think it's important that you feel able to express them either through us
0: or elsewhere and you know this is not about being anti-pharma and saying we don't don't welcome innovation and drugs that are are clearly have a benefit for patients but it is about saying let's make the process as open upfront, and transparent as possible so that that you know the there are no no secrets hidden that that, that emerge later that undermine people's confidence yes and it, and it's the objective element isn't it it's so
1: important i mean this is the trouble we have you know i've got patients who and i going not give you an example of this i've got patients who are taking a bisphosphonate because i don't know they perhaps had a risk assessment following a, a fragility fracture and they are taking a drug because they are sure that it's going to prevent a further fracture you know that's how they see it i'm not going to have a fracture now because I'm taking this drug. And yet, if you look at the evidence, what we're talking about is that one in 90 odd people who take your drug for the next five years will have a fracture prevented. But the other 89 of you are not going to get any difference, you know, not any benefit from it. You know, and I think a lot of patients don't clock that. They're taking all these drugs, their antihypertensives, particularly let's look, you know, particularly around diabetes, taking four or five drugs for their diabetes and yes, they're beneficial, but we could do so much better if they understood actually the balance between lifestyle and these drugs. And I just think we need to get that balance right and get the objectivity back in. And perhaps, you know, patient decision approach, which, of course, what we've been talking about um a little while ago is an important way forward this we need to work with patients and we as clinicians and this is the difficult bit but we as clinicians need to really truly understand the absolute risk reduction that we're getting from these medications so that we can express those to patients in a way that we can both
0: understand and make a proper decision on So there you go in a very neat way we've come full circle back to the editorial (laughs) uh, and highlighted the importance of both good information objective information but complete information for, for patients. So couldn't have planned it better. Okay, right. You can find all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. And if you want to, you can also find all our old podcasts. They're also available. Uh, just click the podcast button at the top of the homepage and you can go back years and listen to us wittering on. Um, We're always pleased to receive comments on any of our content, be it the print issue, the online articles or the podcasts, and you can let us know what you think. We're equally happy with brickbats or bouquets. Uh, Just email us at dtb at bmj.com. And if you want to get involved with DTB, let us know, suggest topics, be a peer reviewer, or even help us write an article. Again, same address, dtb at bmj.com. Uh, Thank you for listening and hope you'll be able to join us next month for November's podcast.